Before we get started, we just want to let y'all know that in this episode, we discuss domestic, intimate partner, and sexual violence, as well as racial violence. So please just keep that in mind. Let justice run its course. In episode three, we briefly mentioned the Baltimore Uprising of 2015. During the unrest, that was the call from people on both sides of the political aisle. To let the process play out, right? Well, that's exactly what happened. Six Baltimore police officers were put on trial for killing a young man named Freddie Gray. It was that homicide that finally triggered the unrest. But this year, three of the officers were acquitted, and the charges against the other three were dropped. American justice ran its course. But before those officers were let off the hook, the U.S. Department of Justice launched an investigation into the Baltimore Police Department. And in August 2016, they released their findings in the form of a 164-page report. The report confirmed what black Americans living in Baltimore already knew. The city's police target their communities with unconstitutional stops and arrests and excessive violence. Across the board, BPD treats black citizens worse than their white counterparts. In some ways, the evidence from the report was vindicating for those who were sympathetic to the Baltimore uprising. Because how can we ask people to let justice run its course when this is what justice looks like in Baltimore? Jelani Cobb, who's a UConn professor and contributor to The New Yorker, pointed out that what the DOJ found in Baltimore wasn't new. And not just in terms of community-based knowledge, but also evidence-based research. Other investigations across the country in cities like Ferguson, Chicago, Newark, and Cleveland all reached similar conclusions about racialized policing in the U.S. There are patterns here, and the Baltimore DOJ report reaffirmed another related pattern. One that we haven't paid nearly enough attention to in our national conversations about race and justice. So I'm going to quickly run through some background for y'all. Between 2010 and 2014, the Baltimore Police Department didn't test 85% of rape kits it received, as it left the majority of its rape cases open while conducting little or no follow-up investigation. Next, BPD officers were found to abuse their power to coerce sexual acts from sex workers, sometimes threatening them with arrest if they didn't cooperate. And when those abuses were reported, BPD didn't investigate them. BPD officers also mistreat transgender people, refusing to acknowledge transgender women as women and conducting invasive searches of them. And finally, BPD detectives often question sexual assault victims in an inflammatory way. That includes accusing victims of trying to ruin their assailants' lives. And guess what? When the DOJ investigated the Newark Police Department in 2014, they discovered the same type of behaviors. NPD lazily investigated cases of sexual assault, and treated victims with little to no empathy, showing, quote, 
ignorance or bias concerning victims of sexual assault, end quote. The study also found anecdotal evidence of harassment and discriminatory policing directed towards queer and trans individuals, although the DOJ chose not to share any concrete conclusions on that issue. In every single episode to this point, we've learned that seemingly nothing in our society operates in a vacuum, right? That's obviously true of identity as well. So when we talk about discrimination in the criminal justice system, the victim that pops into our mind is likely a black man. And that is the demographic at the highest risk of being placed under correctional control. But our justice system also has unique, pernicious effects on those who sit at the intersection of race and other marginalized identities. And we need to be sure not to ignore that. So today, Prasanna and I are going to dive into a couple of those intersections. Welcome. You're listening to Colored, a podcast about crack cocaine, the war on drugs, and the making of post-civil rights America. I'm Joe. And I'm Prasanna. This is a seven-part series, and you're listening to episode six, At the Intersections. All right, so in this episode, we talk about how the war on drugs has specifically affected people differently depending on their gender and sexuality. And in part one, Joe, you talk about how this has all uniquely impacted women. Yeah, not to pat us on the back too much, but I think you'll see how this episode really ties into the rest of the themes of the series. You can kind of think about the beginning of my part as many episodes one and two, where we explore the social position of black women, and then we kind of extrapolate that to see how drug use and the war against them has impacted women specifically. So before we get into the part, I think I just want to encourage all of my fellow men out there and specifically men of color, if you think about racial injustice, but don't think too much about other types of injustice towards other identities. If you think that you can't have a conversation where you talk about race and gender at the same time, or if you think that birth of a nation flopped because, uh, you know, the, the man is trying to bring down Nate Parker and not because of the other things surrounding Um, his rape case and and his response to the rape case. I think just take a a step back and and listen with an open mind uh, and think about how these issues of gender and and other identities really intersect with the racial injustice that you think about a lot. While I was writing this part, I thought of my journey to radicalization as a young black kid. I think it really started with Trayvon Martin, because we were around the same age when he was murdered. He was eating the type of snack I might after a day at school, wearing the same type of clothes I might any day of the week. I always rocked a hoodie in middle and high school, too. He didn't seem that different from me. But I watched my country put him 
the dead victim on what felt like an unending public trial. Then I saw Mike Brown's body left lying on the street for four hours. Then I watched Tamir Rice's life get stolen in seconds. I read about the officers refusing to treat him. I read about the officers making his sister sit handcuffed in a police car just feet away from her dying brother. Then I saw Martise Johnson, a college student trying to have a normal college student weekend, bloodied by officers. Then I watched Walter Scott get shot in the back five times. And then I heard about a white boy killing nine black people in their church after they had welcomed him in. All of that's to say acts of racial violence don't really shock me anymore. They make me sad, they make me angry, and they're continuous reminders that we have to change things. But it's hard to find something that shocks me. When I read Arrested Justice by Dr. Beth Ritchie, I was shocked. It's a book about the various unique forms of violence black women in our country face day in and day out. The book contains graphic detail about a number of tragic cases, and the stories could be really triggering, so I'm going to try to avoid going into most of those specifics today. But if you're up to it, Dr. Ritchie's book and others like it, like Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts, are definitely worth a read. A lot of the ideas I'm going to share in this section come from Dr. Ritchie. And last thing before I get into the information. Throughout this project, Prasanna and I have talked about experiences that are largely different from our own. Because even though I am a black man, I've never lived in poverty. And class combined with race has played a distinct role in the issues we've discussed, right? Knowing that we're speaking on experiences that aren't our own, we both try to be really thoughtful about everything we say. Well, in this section that obviously extends even further, as I'm going to explore how gender intersects with some of the race and class dynamics we've learned about. We both still have a lot more to learn in this regard. Like, I'm definitely not done being shocked by gendered violence. But Pras and I think it's important to share what we've learned to this point. Okay, so to start off, we have to come to an understanding of the social position of black American women. That's what I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about. Remember our discussions last week about how social and economic disadvantage can worsen what may otherwise be universal problems? we focused in on crack use and drug market-related violence. Violent crime in that context in particular is an issue where the conversation often revolves around men because, well, they're overwhelmingly the perpetrators and slightly more often the victims. The point is that solutions to violent crime among men of color should be sure to address any systemic disadvantages they may face that are specific to their identity. 
Well, of course, black women similarly deal with unique social disadvantage. We are already a group of people who are struggling through incredible um, poverty, and and although we've been able to make some strides in terms of um, increase in access to education, uh, closing that gap. The gap, you know, people talk about the gap between the income gap between men and women. Look at the income gap between white women and every other woman. And then you talk about black women, and we still have, you know, per capita, the most poverty um, in the country. So, and we were already, before we, there, the most, the, the fastest growing population of incarcerated people right now in the country are women, predominantly poor women of color, predominantly black women, okay? That was Andrea James, who founded Families for Justice as Healing. But you may know her better as the Colored Podcast all-time record holder for episode appearances. We missed her last week, but this is her fifth one. And I'll give you all a little spoiler. She's in episode seven, too. According to Dr. Beth Ritchie, on top of what Andrea mentioned, black women are also more likely to live in unsafe public housing, have to travel on inefficient public transportation, and are more vulnerable to all forms of abuse than women of almost all other races. We also got the chance to speak with Charmaine Arthur, who currently works at the Freedom House here in Boston. She's been doing community work in the city for 25 years, and her early work focused on helping young people, specifically young mothers, through substance abuse recovery. Women in general carry a lot. Parenting, work, the home, there's a lot that you carry. Now let's include um, incest, let's include violence, domestic violence, let's include rape, let's include pedophilia, let's include drug abuse, let's include the foster system, let's just include a lot of things that come forth that we deal with um, in life. So right now, I guess that some of you are asking the same question you might have asked in episodes one and two of the series. What does this have to do with crack cocaine and or the war on drugs? Well, black women's socioeconomic status has been demonized and criminalized. Does that sound familiar from other episodes? We've mentioned the popular imagery of welfare queens in passing a couple times. That was actually a significant push of Reagan's. He framed black women on welfare as lazy but also conniving, plotting to steal money from the hard-working American taxpayer. So again, we see a conversation that should be centered on rectifying systemic wrongs begin to focus more on individual moral failures, even when those failures were fabricated. See, the origin story of the welfare queen mythology is actually really interesting. Reagan propped up a woman named Linda Taylor as an example of the welfare queen. But in his hyper-focused efforts to demonize welfare abuse, Reagan ignored the worst of Taylor's crimes. Multiple cases of kidnapping, for example. Anyway, if you are interested in learning more about the oversights and lies that created the welfare queen myth, check out an article on NPR called The Truth Behind the Lies of the Original Welfare Queen. 
What's interesting is that no one ever actually clarified Taylor's race. But still, typical discussions of welfare queens were dripping with racial code. And to clarify, the idea of women on welfare living lavish lives is untrue. Families who receive public benefits, of course, spend substantially less than families who don't. And we've already talked about the fact that black families don't even make up the majority of welfare recipients. Anyway, our country has definitely never operated with the best interest of black women in mind. But as Reagan's family-centered philosophies ostracized black women further, we saw the animus that was directed towards them begin to evolve. Dr. Ritchie writes that black women are heavily criticized for the challenges facing black communities, sometimes even by their neighbors or community leaders. So let's think back to the Moynihan Report from Episode 1. The main assertion was that broken families caused a culture of poverty, right? Well, you might remember that Moynihan saw women as the key cog in that supposedly defective culture. He wrote, quote, The Negro community has been forced into a matriarchal structure which, because it is so out of line with the rest of the American society, seriously retards the progress of the group as a whole. End quote. So issues like crime and violence, the roots of which we've already dug into, are passed off as failures of black mothers. And here's what I'm getting at. There are tangible consequences to being so heavily devalued. Because when society doesn't value you, often they don't protect you. So women are 85% of the victims of domestic violence. Black and Native women face the most extreme levels of that violence. It's one of the leading causes of death among young black women. And they also experience sexual assault at higher rates than women of most other races. Again, indigenous women being the exception. In the intro, I discussed that when black women are assaulted, police departments very often fail to come to their aid. And when that happens, sometimes they can't even turn to their own communities for support. Because see, it's no secret in black communities that we live in an era that will largely be socially defined by incarceration. And it's no secret that our justice system has made black men public enemy number one. That extends beyond the sheer number of black men under correctional control, to black men receiving disproportionately long sentences and being the primary targets of racialized policing policies like stop and frisk, including here in Boston. In response, some communities have created an ecosystem that attempts to minimize black men's interactions with the police. But unfortunately, when that philosophy is applied to cases of domestic or sexual violence, the protection of abusive men can be prioritized over the protection of the women they assault. Dr. Ritchie also writes that some black women fall into what she calls a trap of loyalty, where their commitment to their partner, shielding their family from the scrutiny of cultural racism, and other external pressures cause them to conceal their abuse. All of these dynamics factor into the reality that the abuse of black women is 
frequently tolerated. That's not okay, and it's very relevant to this project. Once again, this ties back to a theme that we've touched on before. In episode 2, we talked about how drug use can be an escape from trauma, while sexual assault, which we've established disproportionately impacts women, can severely traumatize its victims. So maybe it shouldn't come as a surprise that rape victims are 26 times more likely to suffer from a drug addiction. And when crack was at its height, men often took advantage of poor black women's addictions. Mary Curry, who you met in episodes 2 and 5, explained this dynamic to us. Most of the time, the men, it was men that would have the money to get high and then and you have sex with them to do it. Now, was that a, a common thing for men it just in, in the drug market to take advantage of women's sexuality for, for drugs? Yes, most certainly. Uh, whether it be oral sex, vagina, or jerking them off, that you, it, it most certainly was. Um, and, you know, I couldn't be on the streets because knew too many people knew my mom and would call her and say, I see your daughter out here on Blue Hill Ave or Washington Street. So I had to go inside the bar, you know, to look for uh, a, a victim, not realizing that I was the victim. So uh, one time I remember being with a state trooper and he spent a whole bunch of money, but my brain didn't stop to think like, take one of them $100 bills and stick it in your bra or put it somewhere, keep something for yourself. So it was a, a, like a police officer that was buying drugs? An actual police officer, yeah. A police officer. Based on the findings of the Baltimore DOJ report, I guess I shouldn't have found this surprising, but yeah, I don't know. Beyond that type of exploitation, you have to remember, this is a society that has demonized and criminalized addiction, particularly among black Americans. So you might imagine where this goes next. When you look at offenses that women have been convicted of, they are mostly what we call um, self-harm things. They are things where women are incarcerated for because they can't get help. It's years of untreated trauma, from sexual abuse to domestic violence to self-medication, using drugs, needing treatment. Those are the reasons women are incarcerated, okay, the majority of them. None of those women need to be in a prison, and our prisons are full of them. They are not there for murder, for rape, even though there is a small percentage of them. But even when you look at those women, they have histories of untreated trauma in relation to something that somebody has done to them to cause them to go down that spiral of getting winding up on a prison bunk. So women are different, and the reasons why we are in prison are very different. That was Andrea again. And she's right. Women are nearly 20% less likely than men to be incarcerated for a violent offense. We also talk a lot about the U.S. being a prison nation. One of the big stats I hear a lot is that we house 5% of the world's population, but over 20% of the world's prison population. Well, we also house 5% of the world's women. 
but nearly 30% of the world's incarcerated women. Even Massachusetts, which incarcerates much fewer women than many other states, would imprison women at the 10th highest rate in the world if it were a country of its own. And yes, black women overwhelmingly bear the brunt of that force. And then when you dig deeper, you find out that what Andrea just told us is disturbingly accurate. Incarcerated women are more likely to report having used drugs at the time of their arrest than men are. They're more likely to have a diagnosed mental health condition. And nearly 70% of incarcerated black women have experienced some type of intimate partner violence during their lives. So all of these things capture the interplay between gender, race, violence, trauma, and our criminal justice system. The Framingham 8 was a pretty high-profile story here in Massachusetts during the late 80s. When we spoke to Charmaine from the Freedom House, she recounted her memory of the story to us. Back in the, I think, early 90s or maybe late 80s, I don't even know if you were born yet, but uh, um, there was a group of women who they called the Framingham 8 that were put in jail because they killed their um, spouses uh, because of domestic abuse, domestic violence. And, you know, here we come years after that, and some brilliant um, person in charge realized that we did not understand the whole picture when we threw them in jail, that we needed to look at the other part of the mental, physical, emotional abuse that was going on where this person said, I cannot take it anymore. So in self-defense, reactionary, trauma, everything that those um, women were dealing with, they killed their abuser. Now, not all of the Framingham 8 were black women, and I do understand if this case makes some of you uneasy because it involves death, but it highlights what we're getting at here. We, as a society, run from our responsibility to confront systemic violence against women. And it is systemic. So, failed by their justice system, their communities, and their loved ones, some traumatized women are forced to cope with their traumas in unhealthy ways. Whether it be through substance abuse, retaliatory violence, or something else. So we don't look at a mother who may have been raped, a mother who may have dealt with incest at a young age, and there were behaviors that would develop. And they, based on these experiences, they have made some poor decisions, which ended up being a legal illegal decision. So what we do, we lock them up instead of trying to build a plan before we throw them into jail. That was Charmaine again. And specific drug war policies have also fostered that criminalization of black women. In episode three, we talked a bit about the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, one of the pillars to our punitive war on drugs. Prasanna mentioned that the act had a less well-known conspiracy provision. But we didn't mention that the provision criminalized women if they had proximity to a drug dealer. Taking phone messages or money from a drug dealing spouse could result in a conspiracy charge. 
even if the money was for something simple like household spending. So we see this societal need to attach women to a man and how it can be harmful in this context. Before we go on, I should touch on something briefly. Even though we talk a lot about the justice system, this series hasn't focused too much on what goes on inside of prisons. Well, rest assured, it's bad. And it's important to note that many of the unique harms that plague women in our society follow them into prisons. Sadly, what stands out the most is sexual violence from prison correctional officers, or COs. Because prisons are such secure institutions, a large sample of data on sexual abuse inside of them can be difficult to come by. But in many prisons, COs are allowed to watch women dress, shower, use the toilet, etc. They can also grope women under the guise of pat-down searches and otherwise harass them. Strip searches are a form of sexual assault, right? If any of us were walking down the street and someone said, in order for you to cross the street, I'm going to take, make, force you to take all of your clothes off and look at your body and, excuse me, touch it if I want to, uh, we would all say that we had been sexually assaulted. But that is just the security of the institution, right, in prisons. That was Jason Lydon, who's one of the founders of an awesome organization called Black and Pink. You're going to hear a lot more from him in the next part. But remember... For incarcerated black women who are more likely than not to have histories of abuse at the hands of men, those types of interactions can worsen trauma. And on top of that, a UN investigation in 1999 found that sexual abuse at the hands of CEOs is widespread. Alright, so hopefully we know that we imprison far too many black women subjecting them to disturbing conditions in the process. We also know that the same is true of black men, though it manifests in different ways. But both of those things being true creates another troubling gap because the majority of our prisoners are parents. Andrea James is going to take this crucial point home. With an increase now in incarceration of women in this country being the fastest growing incarceration population, um, there is a dramatic effect on our communities and our children. Okay? When I was in the federal system and I was asked, there would be women who were two generations, the mother and the grandmother, were incarcerated on the same drug case in the prison that I was in. If you ask them, where are the male counterparts? Where's your husbands? Where are your brothers? Where's your, where's your fathers and whatever? They would be also from the same family, multiple generations in concert. They would say, well, he's serving 15 years in the feds in somewhere else, right? And then you sit back and you say, well, my God, who's left in the communities raising the children? All right, man, so we've kind of been half-joking in, like, discussions about not wanting to be problematic in this episode, but it's a real thing where we are straight cisgender men talking about uh, identities and experiences that are different from our own, 
Um, so how does that tie into what you're going to be talking about in the next part? No, yeah, exactly, man. So in part two, we focus very heavily on the criminalization of LGBTQ communities uh, and especially how that criminalization increased during the war on drugs. Um, but like you said, because we are cisgender, straight men, we don't go into issues of identity and sexual identity in the context of all of this. We kind of just talk about um, criminalization of these communities more broadly. So um, that's something to keep in mind as you listen to this episode. You know, obviously we are limited by our own um, experiences and our own sexuality. So um, yeah. Yeah, so I think if you're unfamiliar with, um, you know, any of the identities that encompass, like, the LGBTQ community, we definitely encourage you to do some background research before listening to this part. All right, guys. So for simplicity's sake, we split this episode into two parts. The first one, the one you just heard, was about how the drug war uniquely impacted women and specifically women of color. Part two, the one that I'm going to narrate right now, is about how the policies of the drug war uniquely impacted queer and trans people. Now, it's important to understand that there are intersections between these identities for trans women and for lesbians, so we hope that you guys keep that in mind as I go along. All right, so one of the earlier interviews that you guys heard in this episode was with a man named Jason Lydon. Jason's one of the founders of an organization called Black and Pink, which is based right here in Boston. So Black and Pink is a nationally networked grassroots organization uh, working to abolish the prison industrial complex while simultaneously meeting the immediate needs of LGBTQ and HIV positive prisoners across the country. We're the largest ever network of LGBTQ and HIV positive prisoners. Um, And we have a monthly newspaper, prisoner-generated content that's used to support organizing of prisoners around the country. Uh, We have a pen pal program where we encourage free world folks to build with folks on the inside to build relationships, get to know each other, build connections to strengthen the larger movement. So when we talked to Jason, he really recommended to us this book called Queer Injustice. Queer Injustice was written by Joey Mogul, Andrea Ritchie, and Kay Whitlock. And it's essentially about how throughout United States history, the LGBTQ community has been heavily criminalized. Like with every book we mention, we recommend that you read through Queer Injustice because it has a lot of things in there that we're just not going to be able to cover today. Okay, so let's take a step back for a second. The war on drugs was part of a larger tough-on-crime era that swept through America from around 1960 to around 1990. This is a huge theme of our podcast. During these three decades, we as a country became super obsessed with stopping crime. And it's important to remember that that obsession wasn't just with drugs. It extended far beyond the war on drugs. So, for example, Queer Injustice specifically talks about how in New York City, sex work was heavily criminalized through stop and frisk. People could be stopped simply for carrying condoms. This is super problematic for a lot of reasons, but one of the worst things to come out of stop and frisk was the excessive harassment of trans and queer people of color. 
In fact, trans people of color are stopped so often that when it happens, it's simply called, quote, walking while trans. Now, what's important to remember is that stop and frisk was part of this larger movement of criminalization, and the war on drugs was also part of that movement, right? So all of these policies worked in tandem. They built off of each other. For example, stop and frisk was used as a measure to prohibit sex work, but it was also used as a way to arrest people for drug possession. Queer Injustice talks about how there was an assumed association between sex work, drugs, and violent crime. Now, in the same way, policies that came out of the drug war affected more than just people who did drugs. The three major policies that we talk about in this podcast, the two big anti-drug abuse acts of the 80s and the 94 crime bill, put more than 100,000 new police officers on the streets and incentivized police departments to put more and more people in jail. And remember in episode four how we talked about the Supreme Court cases that upheld many policies of the drug war? Well, the impact of that was that police abuses, prosecutorial discretion, and disparate sentencing were protected across the board, not just in drug cases. In other words, the war on drugs had a drastic impact on the criminal justice system as a whole. Okay, now consider all of this information in the context of another one of our podcast themes, that marginalized people are most severely impacted by harsh policing policies. So, like communities of color, LGBTQ communities felt the brunt of this mass criminalization. Thinking about the lack of places to go, dealing with poverty and things like that, and also as people were coming out, this coming out process that was happening, people were getting kicked out of their homes in ways that they weren't before. So we see a rise of LGBT youth homelessness, which results in you know, LGBT young people being involved in criminalized economies to survive, predominantly being youth of color, then getting policed, uh, you know, by these major police departments in urban areas around the country, um, leading to disproportionate incarceration of LGBTQ folks. That sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, the war on drugs, anything that criminalizes, um, you know, survival-based economies, uh, disproportionately affects LGBTQ folks because, and specifically LGBTQ people of color because of the realities of, you know, people getting kicked out of their homes, of, you know, LGBTQ folks are much more likely to use substances and people who use substances are more likely to sell substances, right, that are illegal. That also sounds really familiar. So anything that criminalizes the drug trade disproportionately affects LGBTQ people. Now this is where intersectionality comes into play. Those young people live as young people of color in the world we've spent describing these last six weeks. In other words, they face all the risks we've already identified. Now, on top of that, you throw the impression of their sexual and gender identity. And of course, like Joe discussed in the last section, those social dynamics follow them into prison. U.S. prisons are notorious for making rules that restrict sexual expression. There were all these jokes that were made. I don't know if y'all saw in the Globe even a few months ago when Whitey Bulger got placed uh, in solitary confinement for masturbating. Um, and it's a joke in the news because Whitey Bulger is like, sure, whatever, we can all laugh at Whitey Bulger. Um, but the reality is that people are getting enormously disciplined and disproportionately LGBT folks, particularly gay men and trans women, uh, for any sense of sexuality. Um, and, you know, that 
there, you know, this thing called the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which was supposed to, in theory, help and make LGBT folks safer from sexual violence, is actually making a lot of folks get disciplinary tickets all around the country, uh, and some of the worst here in Massachusetts, um, for hand-holding, for hugging, for one person having their shirt off in the day room got a disciplinary ticket as a Prison Rape Elimination Act violation. Um, because they had their shirt off. That these are absurd things. Um, that the prison system is utilizing these reform ideas that were supposed to make things better for LGBT folks and are actually using it to criminalize folks. Um, I actually believe, and it's going to be impossible to track, but I'm of the belief that in 10 years we're actually going to see an enormous decrease in parole rates for LGBT folks, particularly gay men and trans women, because of these PREA violations, that folks are going to come up for their parole hearing, and they're going to be like, you have 14 D tickets for PREA, oh my god, who did you rape? Well, that happened, but, you know, people are engaging in consensual sexual activity, people are engaging in, you know, just romantic friendships, any of those things. And that's just outrageous. Queer and trans folks are also at high risk for sexual assault while under correctional control. Trans women, uh, gender nonconforming folks, uh, so trans women in men's prisons, gender nonconforming folks in men's prisons, and cisgender gay men in men's prisons are more likely than not going to be sexually assaulted during their incarceration. So anytime a judge sentences somebody who is queer, like a gay man or a trans woman uh, to prison, they are sentencing them to more likely than not um, be sexually assaulted during their time. That is outrageous. Um, That's the state of affairs for, uh, you know, folks on the inside. Okay, just to clarify, that truth doesn't justify prohibiting all displays of affection and sexuality in prisons. If the solution was to ban sexuality, then we wouldn't currently have this problem because that's what we're already doing. The real solution is not that complex. It's just accountability. We've already discussed how many correctional officers abuse inmates. That needs to change. But inmates can even report that they've been repeatedly assaulted and still not receive any protection from prison staff. That's also something that has to change. So when we really look into it, we actually know a lot about how our criminal justice system impacts LGBTQ folks, especially when they're in prison. But what are we doing about it? Recently, criminal justice reform has been vaulted to the front of many political conversations. And we asked Jason how he thinks queer and trans people are represented in those conversations. Yeah, I mean, we're not. Um, You know, if you look at who's getting pardoned, you know, these commutations that uh, the president is doing, not a single one of our members has been uh, one of those folks. We have, you know, nearly 10,000 prisoners, many of whom are federal prisoners. He could pardon some of them. Uh, if he wanted to, including ones who are convicted of drug offenses. Um, and that's just not happening. And I think, you know, and part of that has to do with, if you look at who's getting these pardons, they're people who folks are fighting for, right? So I think one of the things that um, happens when we rely on these, like, person-to-person uh, uh, commutation campaigns, uh, that that, re- that requires people to have some sense of who they are. Uh, and so that means there needs to be someone on the outside who cares about them. And so prisoners in general often lose the people who care about them, but queer and trans folks often didn't have anyone who cared about them in the first place. So as an organization that worked with everybody, 
we get some anxiety around the focus on the war on drugs as and like ending the war on drugs as the end to mass incarceration because it won't end mass incarceration um it's essential we must end the war on drugs uh but that won't end uh the violence in the prison system and so we're constantly engaged on that Throughout this episode and really throughout this entire series, we've really focused on all of the harms and negative impacts that have come out of the war on drugs and how they've affected the black community. Well, in episode seven, we're going to talk about how to redress these harms. So definitely tune in next week for the colored finale. Okay, if you guys like what you heard in this episode, then check us out on our website, www.coloredpodcast.com. You can also subscribe to our mailing list there. Um, You can also check us out on SoundCloud or iTunes or whatever podcast app you might use. And, of course, it's time for our weekly shout-outs. We want to thank the Northeastern University's College Program for all their support. Our mentor, Dr. Sarah Jackson, for all of her support. Uh, to our friend Allison Del Castillo for creating the logo for our show, and to our friend Joey Powell for making the music. And now, here's a clip from Episode 7, The Colored Finale. We, we see these arguments, some from Hillary Clinton herself, you know, arguing that the 94 crime bill was the kind of process of democracy at work. This is what the black community wanted. And when we actually look at the debates of the bill, both within the Congressional Black Caucus and their uh, their support of the bill and, and the measures, the, the, the preventative components of the bill that they called for and what actually happened and what black communities at the time are actually calling for, it's, it's, it's much different.